This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Craig. <laughs> My name's Andrew. What happened there? I think I thought I was done. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're for the second week. We're back. Yeah, uh, still getting in the getting back into the swing of things here on Overdue. Every week, one of us reads a book that we've never read before, tells you about it. This month, it's December. Craig, what book did you read for this week in December? I read the book called A Room with a View by E.M. Forster. And my understanding is that this is a book about how if you want a room to be counted as a bedroom for real estate purposes, you have to have a window in the in the room for it to be for it to legally be a bedroom it needs to be a room with a view yeah this book is actually based on several episodes of house hunters where people <laughs> debate whether or not the little room that they are going to turn into a gaming room is mm-hmm. a, is in fact a bedroom mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. all my favorite ep- we're going to talk about this book but i love on an episode <laughs> of house hunters where they're uh-huh. like and this is going to be my vr room and you're like mm-hmm. no it's not no, it's not. You're gonna get rid of that stuff in three months. Mm-hmm. You're, you, yes, is Beat Saber probably a cool workout? Sure, but you don't want to stink that much in your home. I can just tell roughly the stage of parenthood you're in by how much House Hunters it is that you listen, Andrew. Recently. We were watching a lot of House Hunters before we had a kid. Yeah, and now there's more of it. Also, mm-hmm. Antiques Roadshow, but I don't have a good riff on that right now. So, no, isn't it funny how sometimes people think something's worth a lot of money and then it isn't worth it? Okay, real quick, <laughs> there's there's episodes of Antiques Roadshow where they it's like um it's sort of like pop up video where they play an old Antiques Roadshow mm-hmm. and then afterwards, twenty years later, they tell you whether or not it's still worth that much money. Mm-hmm. And when they show you the dollar amount, if it goes up, it goes doot. And if it went down, they play a sad trombone. It goes burk. And it's like <laughs> somebody's dress goes from like five thousand to five hundred bucks or something. And it's if like somebody brings a beanie, ba- beanie baby onto Antiques Roadshow. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking about old things like mm-hmm. antiques, uh, this book it's not new. Um, no, it was published in nineteen oh eight. That's a long time ago. Over a hundred years. <laughs> 114 years ago oh my god yeah uh yeah they this... still had rooms back then <laughs> and windows did. i guess amazingly and views mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. um yeah any this... room with any room with me and it's a room with a view if you know what i'm talking wow. about wow <laughs> this book was on like you know lists several lists of like best novels ever mm-hmm. like good books for you and your friends um and I realized I'd never read it, and I honestly didn't know what it was about. And every time I heard of the movie, I think I thought it was Rear Window. No, that's a different. <laughs> that's a different room. I mean, it's all. It's also a room. There's also a view. 
but the view is sort of being engineered and manipulated in a way that is very different and then it, it's you know sometimes it's not about the room it's not about the view it's about the viewer oh it's in the eye of the beholder oh uh, <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about either em forster or how this book came to be and then after a suitable uh ad break i will tell you about the book Rad. Okay, so Ian Forster, Edward Morgan Forster, is yep. an English novelist. Uh, he was born. Uh, he was originally named Henry Morgan Forster, but then he was baptized as Edward. I don't know what the story is there. Nope. Except like maybe you just took like two of the seven king names that there are and you just mix them up. Well, and maybe like bit. maybe someone just did an Edward the day before, and they're like, well, it can't be the same one again. It's well, someone just did a Henry the day before. You mean? Yeah. They're like well, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Better, better throw an Edward or a John or something in there. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you have like King Gary? Why couldn't you like, get another well, name up in the mix? Okay. Come on. Come on, England. Uh, he's an English novelist, like I said, whose works dealt with colonialism and class and, and sometimes sexuality and homosexuality. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 20 separate years, but he never won it. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. So, Always the bridesmaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he had early in life, he inherited what today would be nearly a million pounds from a relative, which gave him the runway to establish himself as a writer. Um, he graduated from King's College, Cambridge in 1901 with degrees in classics and history and spent some time in Greece and Italy post-graduation because of his interest in like those parts of the world and those periods of history. Uh, and both uh, Where Angels Fear to Tread and Room with a View are considered his Italian novels because Ooh. they, I, I think because they were, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> because they were written uh, partially or entirely during that like period of his life. It's the thing with his novels is he published, so he published five during his lifetime. This dude lived from, I don't, maybe I mentioned 1879 to 1970. He was 91 years old yeah. when he died. All of his novels that were published during his lifetime were published by 1924. So there were just like 45, 46 years of his life where he was, I mean, he was still writing stuff. He had short stories coming out occasionally, but he just, you know, he wrote these, he wrote his books and he was like, okay, I wrote my novels and I don't know that I need to do this anymore. Yeah. (laughs) I, I saw, so there was in my edition, there was like a timeline of his life. Um, that also mentioned that like, Hey, he got set up with money for life. That's kind of cool. Um, does make it easy just to be, uh, like a sometimes author and then, (laughs) It really for does. the career page of your Wiki- the career section of your Wikipedia page to be exceptionally light. I will for a guy who lived for ninety one years. I, I will say the people the the characters in this novel who just have like money and don't have to have a job. None of them are like well adjusted. So sure, like, mm-hmm. um, but he what like he when he was at King's College Cambridge, he got hooked up with the Bloomsbury Group, the Wolfs and the Maynard Keynes, right? Um, but then. What I saw in his like the latter chapter of his life, like I saw that he was he was collaborating with Benjamin Britten on the Billy Budd opera. He was traveling to America to lecture. He had multiple jobs that took him to India. Um, mm. Some, you know, which started as like a tutoring gig, uh, which I think kind of was the impetus, or at least part of what led him to write this novel, Maurice, that wasn't published until after he died. Um, and then he, he had another job over there that took him back there in like the thirties or forties. So Mm -hmm. 
He's just like he had other stuff going on, I guess. Yeah, a lot. He had other stuff going on. He was a he was a BBC radio announcer in the 30s and 40s. He got he got around. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, his first two novels uh, published during his lifetime were "Angels Feared to Tread" and "The Longest Journey." Uh, those those were published in 1905 and 1907. I don't I I don't know a ton about either of those except that they weren't quite as well regarded as the next three. So that so the I've next never three heard are, of that, those novels, and I've heard of the rest of them. I know the phrase "Where Angels Fear to Tread." I just don't know that I know it from <laughs> I don't that book. Think you made it up? No, I don't think you. <laughs> Uh, a Room with a View was published in 1908, got better reviews than his first two, and but is not quite as well regarded as his next two, because mostly because it's just a little lighter in tone. Uh, Forster mm. himself said of this book, uh, A Room with a View may not be his best, but may very well be his nicest. Aww. So it's a, it's, a, it's the nice book. Sure. And then the next two, uh, Howard's End. 1910 and passage to india in 1924 these are books that really dive into thornier issues of of colonialism and and class uh passage to india i think is his best known best regarded work sure uh about east-west relations and and india under british rule what a a rad time that was for everybody (laughs) there's another novel of his that was published shortly after he died it's called maurice it was written when he was in his early 30s and sort of revised a few times during his life it was about uh, it was about homosexuality and homosexual relationships and he i mean i he saw he viewed it as a publishable work but because of um Britain. what we will call well documented prejudices yeah. of this era he he did not have it published while he was alive. Uh, some people say D.H. Lawrence got a chance to read this manuscript, though, when it was still unpublished, and it influenced Lady Chatterley's lover. Huh. So. Influenced in a way like he stole it, or just like, uh. I just saw influence, okay. which I don't know how. <laughs> I don't want to know how tiptoe. No, I don't want to do that. But okay. it is. That is an interesting way to get ideas is to read your friends' unpublishable mm-hmm. books and then to turn them into your own. Yeah, sure. And then he was working on another one, Arctic Summer, but it was never completed or even I don't I don't know if it even exists in some kind of fragmentary form. But yeah, he he wrote almost everything he was gonna write when he you know, by the time he was middle aged and then he just novel wise anyway, and then yeah. did not return to the form uh in any you know, in any significant way until sure. he died. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's the main thing about him. Yeah. He had, he had um, a nu- like a numerous long-term relationships. Um, yeah, he was, he was gay. He was, he was mostly, he was out to close friends, but not really in public. Yeah. 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 And just, I, I think it's fairly typical of an, an artist during that, during that era. period. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned the film adaptation uh, in 1985. Just want to bring up a couple things about that. So the movie itself won't talk about a ton. It starred Helena Bonham Carter, Maggie Smith, Daniel Day Lewis, Judy Dench, among others. Daniel Day, yeah, Daniel Day Lewis. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. sure, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the th- <laughs> Ian Forster he rejected attempts to turn his works into movies when he was alive, partly because he. Did not really care for movies as a form, partly because he didn't care for like American foreign policy. And he knew that if <laughs> stuff got made into movies, it was probably going to have American money involved somewhere. And he just wasn't interested in that. Hell yeah. Um, the and, and the 
a board of fellows at King's College who initially inherited the rights to his books after he died in 1970 also did not really go in for having them filmed. But then like a decade after he dies, it passes this other guy who likes movies. And that, <laughs> at, at that point, it's open season on E.M. Forrester <laughs> novels. So that's where, that's where we get the movie huh. review from. Yeah, that's interesting. Just, they, just had to, they just had to wait him out. It's a well-regarded, like it won a bunch of awards, right? Yeah. I mean, it yeah. won a bunch of American awards. Yeah, I mean, you know. Well, the, okay. The British it was referenced in an episode of the Gilmore Girls, I think. Oh. Yeah. Like, okay. I mean, they would also <laughs> reference the book, I think. They're, they like reading on that show. Uh, and then it's also been adapted for the stage in 1975, radio in 1995, for TV in 2007, and then in musicals initially in 2012 and then reworked in 2014. I don't know what you. I feel like this is more of a light opera than a than a song and dance musical. But maybe mm-hmm. it's not a song and dance sure. musical. Maybe it's just singing. Mm-hmm. There's lots of. That's a very. Uh, you just have a big like sort of renty yeah. set piece about this room and the view that it has. <laughs> I need to rent a room with a view. That's my. <laughs> Yeah, and then I don't know. We could we could talk about the book. I know the only thing I really know about the book's like writing history and publication history is it's the first book he started, even though it was the third one that he mm. published. He started it back in nineteen oh one or nineteen oh two, which some have credited with making the book a little more like lighter and optimistic than some oh, of the other sure. stuff that came out after that. Yeah. Uh, early working title was Lucy or the Lucy novel. So I assume someone named Lucy is in this somewhere. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to mm-hmm. spoil it. Let's take a quick mm-hmm. break. You're I'll... not going to pull away the football. No, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I definitely won't. Mm-hmm. This time I'm going to hold the football exactly where you need me to hold it. Okay. Thank you. Let's take Finally. a break and then you can try to kick it okay Andrew I'm a very busy man with a new son Mm -hmm. and I don't have time to shop for anyone and I don't Mm -hmm. know what they want there's just Mm -hmm. this baby here who wants to eat and sleep Mm -hmm. and we give him that already what do I give to other people (laughs) well whether you have a discerning adult or a thoroughly non-discerning infant on your shopping list uh, this holiday season one thing you can get them all is socks and shirts and underpants and stuff from Bombas Bombas is our sponsor this week okay uh bombas clothes feel good because they're thoughtfully designed with the softest materials and they do good because for every item you purchase bombas donates another to someone in need bombas socks underwear t-shirts and slippers are cozy upgrades to everyday basics and the perfect gift for everyone on your list including guess who yourself oh dang (laughs) i do need a (laughs) gift and i do like bombas socks so Mm -hmm. yeah they are pretty good uh so yeah uh, bombas has donated over 75 million items of clothing it's a whole lot of comfort and a whole lot of good so give the good this holiday season with bombas go to bombas.com slash do that's d-u-e and use code do for 20 percent off your first purchase that's b-o-m-b-a-s.com slash do code do for 20 percent off bombas.com slash do code do that's d-u-e been to italy andrew yeah mamma mia i sure have where in italy did you go 
We went to where did we go? We went to uh, Venice, the water one. Oh, yeah, the water. <laughs> the, we went to the water level. <laughs> uh, we were in. Um, we were not Pompeii, but the one that's close to that. Oh, I don't. Um, hmm. oh, dang, uh, is it Naples? Like oh, Naples. maybe. Did you go? Did you go to Rome? We did. Yeah, we were in Rome. Was the bulk of the trip? We were in Vatican City for a little bit. Uh, we went down to Naples for one day, which is pretty close to yeah the lava level. Of <laughs> did you go of to Florence at all? Uh, yes. Okay. So, so I was wicked allergic to something in re- Florence, yes. and it made my it made our like two or three days there really unpleasant. I remember that you that you had trouble in Italy. That was normally I normally I don't like art museums are fine, and I know that our listenership in particular is probably going to come at me over this, but mm. like. If I'm looking at at art from say like the first half of the of the Renaissance, 1000s, oh, oh, it's like I've seen this lady and her baby. It's like pick oh something God. else to pick something else to paint. <laughs> Why yes. don't you? But I developed a, a renewed appreciation of museums when we were in Florence because the air was super filtered and <laughs> I could breathe and it was awesome. <laughs> I always my favorite thing about that like pre Renaissance art is when it's like a picture of a of a baby next to a book and then there's like seven other things on a table and mm-hmm. then there's a sign on the wall that tells you what all of those things mean it's like it's a pen pointed to the left which means that the guy was an anarchist yeah <laughs> right like what what is this was the this guy's you know tiny desk set up say about <laughs> the king at the time you know it's cool i'm poking uh-huh. i'm having fun here i don't know much about art which is why i'm having fun um boy it's my worst trivia category uh so yes, this, we we spent some time in Italy in 2017. Yeah, this book takes place in Florence for the first mm-hmm. part, mm-hmm. which is why I bring that up. It's where mm-hmm. the first mention of a room with a view comes up on literally like the first page. So is it just one room that has a view, or are we just talking about the concept of rooms with views? Uh, not well. Uh. Mm, Okay, so the <laughs> didn't expect that question to prompt an actual answer. There are lots of English people in Italy, more than you might expect. They're all like in what is called a pension. There, it's sort of like uh, I don't know if it's it's like a fancy hostel maybe or like a hotel where British people are there, and they, so that they don't like you know hang out in an italian hotel i guess like they're mm-hmm. all there together in this you know place where they sleep in italy when they're mm-hmm. on vacation or whatever they're doing there and uh so we like the first half of this book is a bunch of different british characters in florence and uh two of them lucy honeychurch and her cousin slash chaperone uh the uptight miss charlotte bartlett Mm-hmm. Uh, that's quite a name <laughs> yes uh, they are complaining that the rooms that they were given do not have a good view they don't have views so they yeah. want a view yes they want and a view like a, and then it be, from here I assume it becomes sort of a waiting for Godot thing where they're waiting to get a room with a view and then they never get one well <laughs> the, they actually immediately are interrupted by two guys well mostly the older guy the dad mr emerson and his son george his adult son george um (laughs) large adult son they are also staying at this place and they are not of the same 
social. I don't know if you've heard about um, class, Andrew, and yeah. how rigid some of the class structures are in Britain in particular. Yeah, no, I know of it. Yeah. And, and of like what, how everything you need to know about a person, I guess, apparently can be divined through the specific accent that they have. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so Mr. Emerson and his son, they are not, you know, oi, Cockney, Eliza Doolittles, like, you know. Sure, not, you know, not Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. The book is not trying to stretch that far, but uh, it is clear from how, in particular, Charlotte Bartlett responds to them that they are worthy from her of her opinion of snobbery. She, quote, she knew that the intruder into their conversation was ill-bred even before she glanced at him. He was an old man of heavy build with a fair, shaven face and large eyes. There was something childish in those eyes, though it was not the childishness of senility. Okay, so he's just like, he's stupid. He's a, actually, he's like a good person who is interested in like philosophizing and maybe he's a socialist no but he yeah. has an accent so he's a, he's got he's, a stupid kid face yeah yeah he's got a stupid mm-hmm. baby face um yeah. and he interrupts their conversation where they're complaining about not having a room with a view and he's like me and my son have rooms with a view we mm-hmm. could swap mm-hmm. you want to swap mm-hmm. and charlotte partlet's like uh nope can't accept y'all no people would never do this uh, we can't. No, thank you. Goodbye. Yes. yes. Take your ridiculous idiot baby face out of my view, please. How dare you do uh, good things to pe- for people that you've never met before, but mm-hmm. I don't want to be uh, the subject of any impropriety. No, thank you. Yeah. No, that's not how nobility rolls. Yeah. And we're either going to get what we want because we threw our weight around or we're not going to get what we want and we're going to complain about it for the rest of our lives. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's how it works. And and it is like so this is taking place contemporaneous to when it was written. So this is Edwardian England, which mm-hmm. is I which as I understand, there's a lot of like anxiety about the transition out of the Victorian era mm-hmm. and changing social mores and the dawn of the 20th century. My favorite thing about the Edwardian era is that it's like eight years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, and then so World War like, One really happened. So, yeah. Um, but they, they bump into a clergyman named Mr. Beeb. That's a good name. Yeah. B-E-E-B-E. So I'm going Mr. Beeb. What kind of dumb, stupid face does he have? I don't remember what his face looks like. We don't oh, remark okay. upon it. Um, he doesn't have sort of a just, <laughs> <his> childlike <laughs> wonder that doesn't come from senility, no. whatever the dumb backhanded thing she said was. And he talks to Charlotte. And if I haven't made this clear, which I haven't at all, uh, Lucy is our main character. But okay. Charlotte dominates this opening scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, with her manners and her propriety. It's Lucy. So Lucy is probably less bad. Yeah. And she gets less bad over the course of the novel, I would say. Oh, look at that. Um, There's hope for us all. She's younger and has kind of a a more lower D democratic notion of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the youth will save us type energy, I guess. Oh, great, right. Good. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Mr. Beeb's like, why don't you just accept their stupid rooms? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if you want a view. And finally, he talks them into it. Uh, Mr. Beeb, later in the novel, remarks about Lucy. Lucy's kind of like not sure how to act on her 20th century woman 
impulses to like defy societal norms maybe she's what kind of that sti- that's the mouthful of a sentence what it is mean? she's kind of a stifled personality she's young she hasn't found herself yet and there are a lot of people in her life who uphold kind of the existing status quo she doesn't really care for it but she also doesn't know what she would do instead okay and she's like kind of waiting for something to kickstart her life and the only thing that mr beeb observes about her he's going to wind up being the clergyman in her hometown back in england Mm -hmm. um is that when she's playing the piano when she's playing music um she comes to life and he says if she could live life the way that she plays music she will be something to behold Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like kind of she's on the precipice of breaking through and this whole first part of the novel is like Lucy in Florence like trying to go see art trying to have a good time around town and other English people she meets except for the Emersons are kind of they're not you know they're not great uh-huh they, they don't take kindly to this young woman trying to do they, things. Well, they just kind of want to, they just want her to, she's not even like a, she's not even doing anything to make them upset. She's just like, they're just reinforcing, hey, we go to Italy and isn't it fun here to just be British? Mm-hmm. And she's like, I don't, I like how in, in Italy anyone can experience anything. I, there's this mm-hmm. whole thing in this book where like Italy represents seeing the world outside of British class structure. Now, I don't know Mm -hmm. if all Italians would agree that that was their experience, Mm -hmm. but Lucy's perception is that Italy has this kind of freer, flattened hierarchy where people can be more straightforward and loosey-goosey. Very Mediterranean. England in like the year 1900? Yeah, probably. Like probably sure. everywhere it does. Sure, that's fair. Um, so at one point she goes, you know, looking for something to do with this novelist, Eleanor Lavish, who is a you know, kind of a trashy novelist. Uh, and she promises Lucy a tour and then l- strands her after they get lost because she sees a friend and runs away. Mm-hmm. And Lucy winds up spending time with the Emersons at the Basilica Santa Croce at the church. And she gets to know them. She likes them. Um, George, who is winds up being part of the love triangle in this book, he's very sullen and quiet. And imagine if you were on a vacation and you struck up conversation with an older guy and he was like, listen, my son is having problems. Mm-hmm. And if you could just talk to him, I, you don't need to fall in love with him. But just, could you just get to know him i guess i bring him out of his shell my question so far for you on this book is that i thought we were going to talk about a room with a view and not a synopsis of this season of the white lotus (laughs) 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 because it sounded like eccentric people from different walks of life all come to a hotel and have a bad time seems to be (laughs) (laughs) kind of broadly the vibe that I'm getting. So, so is far. so. Have they said if season three of White Lotus is they go back to one of the main characters' hometowns and more eccentric people show up and they also have a bad time? That would be a that would be a twist. Okay, because that is what happens in part two of this book. Is they, okay, cool. They leave Italy. They mm-hmm. go back to I think it's Surrey, 
uh, and the you know the country house where Lucy is from called Wendy's Corner. I think is the name of the house. <laughs> sure, it is. <laughs> um, but so while she, you know, more houses should have names. Yeah, more houses should. My what house is, should have a name. What is your house's name? Uh, Derek. Mm. Mm. Mine is Rain Cover. Okay. Yeah, because that's what it is. Yep. It's pretty okay. utilitarian. Good talk. Yep. Great. Um, what's wrong with George? Let me remind you. This is what Mr. Emerson says of his son when she's like, what's wrong with him? And he goes, this this is like an example of the writing in this book that I actually liked. He goes, uh, the old trouble, things won't fit. And she's like, what does that mean? He goes, the things of the universe. It's quite true. They don't. It's like, George is just like, you know, he's now you might call it depression you, you you know, he is just not well. He is not interested in what life has to offer. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Emerson thinks that this nice young woman that he meets, it, Lucy, might maybe save him. I like the bit where Lucy goes, I think maybe he just needs a job. Because mm-hmm. it reminded me of, it's funny that you made a Peanuts reference. It reminds me of when Lucy looks at Charlie Brown and goes, you need involvement. You need like involvement. It sounded like she's like, you need to get involved in something. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, she's going through sort of a same crisis. She wants something to happen in her life. Andrew, she is walking around town. She sees two Italian guys fighting. Mm-hmm. And one of them murders the other one. Okay. Just in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. And she kind of passes out, and also George is there, and mm-hmm. he helps her up. It's and busy. It's getting busy in here suddenly. Yes. And they strike up some conversations, and he sa- she's like, at the end of their you know long conversation about what happened, what didn't happen, she's like, wow, that's sometimes weird stuff happens, and then you go back to your old life. Huh? That's strange. And he goes, nah, I'm changed. I want to oh. live now. Okay. And it's ca- part of... Both him connecting with her and like seeing a guy lose his life that he's like, hmm, maybe I'm awake now. Maybe I'm, you know, interested in things again. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another priest on this trip who doesn't like the Emersons uh, because he says that Mr. Emerson, quote, murdered his wife in the sight of God. Whoa. That line rings throughout the book until we find out that, no, it's, you know, anybody reading the book, you're like, he didn't kill anyone. His wife probably died in a way that made the priest upset Mm -hmm. or something. And Mr. Emerson is not particularly religious, so it has to do with the fact that they did not baptize their son, and Mrs. Uh, Emerson was very sad about it. I mean, again, we're talking about about England in the year 1900. Like, all this stuff would have been, (laughs) probably would have been (laughs) interpreted as, like, more... Uh, related than they were in reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the the pivotal scene at the end of part one is it starts with chapter six, and not all the chapters have subheads. Andrew, mm-hmm. I do like when a chapter gets a title. You know, sure. Um, this one is fun. Uh, chapter six, the Reverend Arthur Beebe, the Reverend Cuthbert Eager, Mr. Emerson, Mr. George Emerson, Miss Eleanor Lavish, Miss Charlotte Bartlett, Miss Lucy Honeychurch drive out in carriages to see a view. Italians drive them. That's the whole, that's the chapter name? That's the chapter name. <laughs> that sounds like a chapter, kind of. It like is. Short, it's pretty short, but. It is. This is a fun. Sounds like it could be the whole thing. You've it, told me what happens. I've, I've. 
that only leaves out like one part of the <laughs> chapter. Wow. Um, Surprised that it even leaves out that much. Yeah, I mean, it leaves out the part where like one of the Italian drivers brought a w- woman with him in the carriage, and he claimed it was his sister, but then they started making out. And I mean, okay. <laughs> and the one priest is like, "This is bad. You got I will not stand for this." And he separates them. And mm-hmm. Mr. Emerson's like, "Oh, that's so sad. You separated lovers." This is a metaphor for other parts of the book. Uh, (laughs) And there's this very romantic kiss that occurs uh, at the end of this part, Andrew. Did you you find anything on this book being a romance? Yeah, I mean, it's got the like the love triangle situation, right? Mm -hmm. So that implies romance to me. Yes. The but the triangle has not even taken shape at this point uh lucy who is like everybody gets piles out of the car i don't think i've ever been on a trip like this where everybody piles into cars and then they say get out of the car go look at stuff like go mm-hmm. look like i, I maybe my i'm sure i've done, done that. this it's, but my, my parents have they, they went on a cruise i think of mm. of part of europe and it's it was a like you spend most of your time on the boat. It's a, it's a, yes, but, but you do get some semi, uh, what's the word I want? Like unstructured time where <laughs> it'll put in at a port and it's just like, Hey, go entertain yourselves for three hours. And then you can come back to your floating hotel later. Yeah, yeah sure. Your white lotus. And that's, that's yes. the closest I can think of to this situation. Yeah. This is like, everybody has to get out and like, look at this fantastic, I mean, there are plenty of trips that have this component, um, now that I say it out loud. But uh, everybody's, like, walking around, and Lucy doesn't really have anything to do, so she goes to try to find Mr. Beeb. And she goes up to the driver, and in Italian, tries to ask him where to find, like, the pa- like the priest or the good man, I think is what her Italian mm-hmm. is. And he actually the, the discotheque. Yeah, it, that's kind of <laughs> what happens because he leads her through some shrubbery, and instead leads her to George instead. Ooh! And George is like contemplating this like terrace cliff view, and there's all these violet flowers, and she emerges from these beautiful flowers, and he is so moved that he just gives her a big old smooch, mm-hmm. and Charlotte Bartlett discovers them. Yeah. And it's scandalous. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, Charlotte and uh, Lucy leave for Rome and don't say okay. goodbye to anybody. Well, why would they? They're leaving in disgrace because one of them t- touched a, a, a commoner wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's you know no one knows that it happened. Um, one of Lucy had like developed feelings for George after the murder they both witnessed in the street. Yeah, I mean, when, that'll do it. When he promised not to, like, not only not tell anyone that she was, like, out or that she'd bought some, like, interesting artistic photographs that no, that people would think were a little inappropriate for her or that she fainted in the street witnessing a murder or even bragging that he was chivalrous about it. Like, he's not going to tell anyone. And she's like, that's kind of cool. I like his energy like the cut of his jib um and then the cut of his recently undepressed <laughs> jib and then he sees her emerge beautifully from a, a bush of violets 
and is like, I love this woman. She's the only thing I have in this world. And they make out, and then she flees to Rome. Okay. And that's that's the first half of the book. And I, and I didn't know, where do you think the book wants to go next? I told you it goes back to England. What do you think is going to happen there? I mean, is she going to be asked to settle back into her old life, but she's going to be a changed person because of the experiences that she had while she was away from home? You seem like you've read a book before. Yeah, I know how story works. <laughs> So <laughs> she, it does yada yada her time in Rome, mm-hmm. and she comes back, and we meet her brother Freddie, and her mom Mrs. Honeychurch. Freddie's kind of fun. I could read a whole book about Freddie. Mm-hmm. He says stuff, you know. I he just he, he's not even saying slang, and Mrs. Honeychurch is like, I can't believe the way you talk. Like he's just like, I told him it was none of his business, and she's like, I can't believe how you speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freddie's fun, but apparently, uh, while she was in Rome, she hooked up with this guy Cecil. Do you say Cecil or Cecil when you see this name? I guess I usually say Cecil. Hmm. Once, I think once upon a time I might have said Cecil. I think Cecil is correct, that. but when I first encountered the name, I said Cecil. It's been a hard habit to break. Mm-hmm. Um. So this guy, Mister C, uh, <laughs> he is a dude he's a rich guy who doesn't have a job and will never need a job Mm -hmm. and is more aristocratic even than lucy honeychurch the secret about lucy honeychurch's uh quote unquote aristocratic background is her family is not from some sort of like lineage of landed gentry her new money a, a little bit. Oh, it's gross. Not, it's, not, it's not. I don't even know it's that. It's the way that it's portrayed is she lives in the country, and uh, her dad, who was like a wealthy solicitor, which is that like he It's like a is that a lawyer? Is a solicitor yeah, a solicitor lawyer? Solicitor is a lawyer. Okay. Yes. So he moves to this like country region that hasn't really been developed yet, and he builds this cool house. And then he's like, "Dang, I like this house. I want to live here." And so then when actual people with money from London are like, what if we move to the Burbs and we move into this, ta- this country area? Wow, this guy already has a house. He must be some like aristocrat who's been living here for years. Mm-hmm. And they all just treat them as if they are of their class, which I guess is like Forster kind of painting a little bit of the like capriciousness of this whole structure. Yeah, right? like, if, like people... <laughs> If they don't know better, then oops, they might accidentally discover that there's not really that big a difference between people. <laughs> yeah, right. And the way that he puts it is that, like, by the time they found out that that wasn't where their money came from, they already it would have li- been too embarrassing to to yes. go back to yeah. And mm-hmm. they already liked you know Mrs. Honeychurch, so they're like, whatever, you're fine here. Um, but Cecil is from real old money, real like hoity-toity stuff. Mm-hmm. He has been taken with Lucy. He proposed to her twice in Rome, and she said no. Mm-hmm. And as we open, but he's a nobleman with money, so you yeah. know, as long as he asks her enough times, yes. eventually he'll wear her down. And he opens. We open the the second part of the book with him proposing to her a third time, and she winds up saying yes. Now, before we find out that she said yes, there's this great little scene 
where Lucy's mom is writing a letter to Cecil's mom to be like, listen, he's talking to me a bunch. I don't know why he wants my opinion. He can marry my daughter. It's fine. But she keeps scratching out. Like, imagine if someone could read your email drafts, Andrew, before you sent... Like, I was just... It's just a fun little scene where later in the book, Cecil sees the letter that uh, Lucy's mom was writing and Mm -hmm. sees all the little sentences that she scratched out as she was trying to find the right words to talk about this guy. Mm -hmm. And you could just... It's just a particular form of embarrassment that I think is unique to letter writing. That I don't... (laughs) like. That you, I mean, I don't like to show anybody anything that I'm working on before I, before I can consider it like, if not done, at least like at a stopping point. Yes. Well, what I, it's embarrassing for him because he can see all the ways that she is reconsidering how she's going to talk about him oh. in the letter. Like that's yes, the that's thing a, that I think is kind of sure. neat. Okay. Um, but he is described as medieval. In a book that really likes the Renaissance, mm-hmm. uh, that is, that type of language is used about a bunch of different characters. Like Lucy and George are like they're Renaissance paintings. Man, there's just they're full of emotion and they're, you know, the world and the future. And he's it a, sounds like a thing that you'll put in an Edwardian diss track. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is a Gothic statue, tall and refined, with shoulders that seemed brace. Braced squared by an effort of the will and a head that was tilted a little higher than the usual level vision, he resembled those fastidious saints who guard the portals of a French cathedral. Well-educated, well-endowed, and not deficient physically, he remained in the grip... This Now, here's the line that I really like. Forster's really here to put this guy down. He says, mm-hmm. he remained in the grip of a certain devil whom the modern world knows as self-consciousness. <laughs> and whom the medieval with dimmer vision worshipped as aestheticism. Mm-hmm. A gothic statue implies celibacy, just as a Greek statue implies fruition. I don't really know what that sentence It sounds quite means. devastating. It do- <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> it has the cadence of a sick burn. Yeah, and the, the big burn on Cecil is that he is more snobbish than he realizes Mm -hmm. he thinks that he's this young guy who doesn't like old society and yet the way that he uses people and thinks about people is just as destructive and and snobbish like he he likes lucy for the idea of the woman that she is Mm -hmm. he does not really connect with her Mm -hmm. um and the big like plot thing that he causes in the back half of the book is there's this there's this lord i guess he's a sir he's a sir knight well everyone in britain is a knight um yeah that's true everyone is yeah sir somebody who's a sir harry otway has sounds like pig latin for somebody's real name right yeah (laughs) he has a villa to lease in this small town and lucy thinks hey why don't you lease it to my these old sisters that I met in Italy? Now they're unmarried spinsters who traveled Europe. Yes. And yes, 32 years old. Yes. Sad old maids. <laughs> and you know, people have feelings about that. Mm-hmm. And a few chapters later, Cecil's like, why don't we invite these cool Yabos that I met at the National Gallery? Because they don't understand art the way I do. 
And Sir Otway is convinced that he's going to rent to the wrong person. So I'm going to make him rent these people, you know, to these people who are slightly lower class than him just to teach him a lesson. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you know, Andrew? Mm-hmm. It's the Emersons. Whoa. Is George and his dad. There's mm-hmm. some coincidences in this book that you just need to, like, let wash over you. I mean, that's probably one of the romancy things about it. Yeah, right? the comic like, romance part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and so he rents to imagine just the stammering Hugh Grant in one of these roles. <laughs> he convinces Otway to to rent to the Emersons, which of course puts Lucy out because she wanted her friends to get it. And also Lucy discovers that it's the Emerson that she made out with. And so now she's freaked out. Not happy about that. Uh and then, you know, then we have a good old-fashioned love triangle. She sees <laughs> she sees George again because her brother goes to introduce himself to George, not knowing any of this history. And he's like, hey, you want to come uh, go take a bath in our pond, in, in the town pond with me and, mm-hmm. the, and the priest, Mr. Beebs? And mm-hmm. they, like, have a fun little frolic in the pond. And then Lucy walks by and is like, oh, no, you're naked. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And George is like, Lucy's here. Uh-oh, I'm naked. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't say uh oh he's like he's you know he's feeling more alive than he's yes. ever okay. been before mm-hmm. yeah um and then there is one other pivotal scene where they play tennis and cecil doesn't like to play tennis he doesn't like to do athletics and he is instead reading a I get book it. remember when 50 shades of gray came out and sometimes people would have fun just like reading parts of the book to other people to be like, can you believe this trend? Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, we may have done some of that on our, on this very podcast yeah. many, many years ago at this point. So imagine you invited some friends over to play tennis and there's this guy who's engaged to your friend who uh-huh. is like, can you believe this book? I'm just going to walk around and read this trash book out loud mm-hmm. because it's so funny and so poorly written. That's that's getting to be too obnoxious. Isn't it? Because you're because you're loudly declaring that you're being ironic about something and that's 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 tiresome. And, I've decided. And in your quest to find the funniest passage, you inadvertently read a passage about two people making out mm-hmm. in a terrace or on a terrace with all these flowers in Italy. Mm-hmm. And Lucy... Sounds and, like there's about to be a hilarious coincidence. Or an emotionally devastating one. Lucy, well, I mean, maybe hilarious for us, the readers. Well, yes, hilarious <laughs> for us, like, the readers. Look, yes. look at these people bouncing off each other. Lucy womp and George womp. recognize... Lucy in particular recognizes the passage as a retelling of what happened to her. She also recognizes the pen name of the author being that Miss Lavish, the novelist that she met in Italy, mm-hmm. who knew Charlotte Bartlett, and so Charlotte has spilled her secret, and Lucy's pissed. Uh-oh. And then Lucy has to tell George to leave. George goes on a rant about how Cecil's a bad guy. He says, quote, this is the type who's kept Europe back for a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> well... All right, let's not let's not get too hyperbolic over here. I did like the so this is a fun exchange. He's like he always tells you what to think. He tells you what he thinks a woman thinks. You should I love you more than he does, blah 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 blah. I do like that Lucy's like interesting. Your critique of him is that he tells me what to think. You're telling me what to think right now. And he's like, mm-hmm. "Listen, I get it." 
this is a problem. But I am, I really know. He does. This is basically what he says. He's like, listen, this is a problem. We're I'm all not trying like to, other guys. I'm we're different. all trying to tell each other what mm-hmm. to think, but like at least you and I lo- could love each other and we'd be honest about it. Um, Lucy breaks off her engagement. She also tells George to leave. And through a really, you know, heartfelt, meaningful conversation with Mr. Emerson that is kind of improbable that it happens in the first place, Mm -hmm. uh, she comes to realize that she does, in fact, love George. Mm -hmm. And then we don't... Fun fun thing that Forster does not do that Mm -hmm. most rom-coms might do, Mm -hmm. you know, traditional Mm rom-com, he doesn't do the, oh, I love him, and now, like, we see them reunite and she explains how she was wrong or whatever scene. Mm-hmm. It jumps right from her going, oh my God, I do love him, to them in Italy in the room with a view talking about how they eloped and how they're going to have to repair some family relationships, but ultimately it was worth it. Yeah, I mean, I guess if like you can just kind of assume maybe that audiences would could fill that whole part in the middle in. Yeah. I, mean, I, got, I don't know. As a writer, sometimes you get to a part that is easy to write. It's not going to be difficult for you to write. It's just kind of boring, and you don't want to do it. So maybe you're right. Maybe Actually, Forster just got to it and was like, "Yeah, if you, we could, I can kind of hand wave this away. People know what's going to happen. I just want to get to the part where I, that I actually want to write, and maybe yeah. I'll get back to that other part later, and maybe I won't. Well, well, we'll, we'll see. That and that might align kind of with the fun narrative part of this like narration or point of view part of this book. It's an omniscient narrator that occasionally does like authory stuff where it'll like address the reader. Um, it'll be like, it is obvious enough for the reader to conclude. She loves young Emerson. A reader in Lucy's place would not find it obvious. Life is easy to chronicle, but bewildering to practice. And we welcome Mm -hmm. nerves or any other shibboleth that will cloak our personal desire. She loved Cecil. George made her nervous. Will the reader explain to her that the phrases should have been reversed? So he's to your point that he like would maybe cut the cruff a little bit because he knows that the reader is doing some work. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you to say? Me. Did you say cruff? Yeah, cruft with a T. Oh, ooh, we get to learn a new word today. I That's love fun. to learn a new word today. Do you want to learn another word today? Yeah, sure. Uh, bum- bumble puppy, bumble puppy, Andrew mm-hmm. is. Kind of a did, did you say bumble puppy to me? I did say bumble puppy to you in your Gross. own home, sort of. Um, right. It is a Calvin Ball esque tennis game in this book, where uh, this is how it's written: an ancient and most honorable game, which consists in striking tennis balls high into the air so they fall over the net and immoderately bounce, and then just kind of cause chaos. So it's not really a game; you're just hitting tennis balls around. Yeah, but they bounce immoderately. They, yeah, they do bounce immoderately. Um, and I looked it up. It derives from kind of a slang term for playing bridge or whist poorly and goofily. Okay. So you're, it's, you're kind of playing without the rules or you're playing in spite of the rules. You're playing Bumble Puppy. Uh, gross. Which like, is kind of well, I say again, gross. <laughs> uh, and yeah, the this, I don't know. I'm at the end of the book. Um, apparently, there was an afterword that was not in my edition. Okay. Did you 
find anything out about it or did you just know that it exists? I know that it exists. Okay. Um, I know that he, or it's an appendix, I guess it's it's called. He wrote it in 1958. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know. He just kind of revisits the characters. He talks about George in the war doing the conscientious objector thing that I think Forster himself did. Forster did do in, in World War One. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mr. Emerson dies. Uh, then World War Two happens. And, you know, they have, I think, I don't know why he went back to it. If, if anyone listening is like a room with a view expert and would like to tell me why this mm-hmm. happened um i think that there is something to the effect that like he did want people to know that even though maybe their family was sort of upset they do there is an opportunity for some uh reconciliation with mm-hmm. people okay um for their choices but yeah it's an interesting book kind of about it's very much about class um it's kind of whimsical in how it's written at times, but then also we'll just like in that romance. And I, I don't, when I say romantic comedy, I'm not deliberately just, you know, aping modern movies or, or movies that mostly don't get made anywhere except on streaming services now. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it, it is romantic in the sense that characters have deep feelings about the world and about what happens to them. It is comic in the sense that it is often satirical or kind of lampooning uh, some of those deeply head feel, deeply held feelings, especially for you know people who are adhering to rigid social structures mm-hmm. and not recognizing the potential of the individual, which I think is like a big thing for Forster and mm-hmm. all the people in that Bloomsbury group. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a fun read. I liked. I mean, Lucy is an interesting character who makes people upset, and people make her upset. Um, I kind of didn't expect it to work out well for them, mm-hmm. given what the tenor of the book. I kind of, to your point about it being you just earlier, think they would be they'd be like shunned by their respective. T- families or something for the odd match they've decided to make or? i don't i just didn't kind of expect the the ease with which he has it work out for them together sure. the two of them i kind mm-hmm. of expected uh more strife or them maybe to not end up together it, it there's a version of this book i think that ends right after she has ended the engagement and sent george away in reverse order she sends george away first and then she's just like on her own Mm -hmm. and that could be a kind of sad lonely ending or it could be a triumphant independent ending and he chooses instead to reconcile it into an elopement um which is interesting i don't know okay but yeah i i don't i have no idea what the tone of the movie is i don't know if the movie is fun if the movie's super serious mm-hmm. i feel like you could adapt this wrong and have it be too serious <laughs> might be <laughs> might be my feeling mm-hmm. but yeah i don't know that's it that's what i got okay room of the view that's it that's the yeah. room mm-hmm. what uh view would you like to see outside of a room andrew any what what would your your best view you could if you looked outside of the window right now what would you like to see? 
I mean, I was my first thought was ocean, but then my mm-hmm. thought was like climate change. I want to, I want to <laughs> be in a house next to you. Like that's going to be terrible for my property values. Mm. So I guess like a be able to see like a cool mountain or something out my window would be cool. Yeah, I I would like to steal your uh, answer. Is, oh, it, is well, that a button well. I can press? <laughs> I mean, if you want to, it's going to make me look way smarter and more prepared than you. I have not often looked out a window and seen a mountain. And when I was in a hotel in Denver several years ago, I looked out my hotel window and saw mountains. And I thought, dang, that's cool. Yeah, because if you're from the East Coast, there are like just wide swaths of it out there that looks like another planet. Yeah. It's so it's just so different yeah. in so many ways. So, okay. Room of the, room of the mountain view. Yeah. That's what we would choose. But not like it's not like a Google thing. What? Mountain View, California is where they Oh, okay. Mm, yeah. Silicon Valley. I know that place. Yeah. But no, not that's not a Silicon Valley thing. Oh. It's just we would like a mountain outside, please. Yes. That's what we would like. If you can help us with that, please send us an email. Or a mountain. Send us send us a mountain as an attachment over to pod at gmail.com. There's a file and upload. No JPEGs, only real mountains. Only real mountains. Get it under 25 No NFTs. Megs. Come yeah. on. Come on. Um, find us on social media at Overdue Pod. Thanks to people who reached out in the last week. Miles, Jennifer, Cecily, Alex, uh, Lainey, Yumana, Kevin, thank you all. Many more. Um, Andrew, folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? OverduePodcast.com is our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. Craig, you and I had finalized our December schedule for real this time. Yeah. And next week I am going to be reading the was a spy who came in from the cold is the specific configuration of spy words. <laughs> yes, by John Le Carre. That's what you are yes, reading. Yes. Yeah. A George Smiley novel. We um, are and then twelve twenty six L's with benefits for mm-hmm. our happy horny days celebration. And a QA bonus episode. Get your Q's and your A's sent in. I think we're gonna do another like small little announcement episode that'll go up on the feed at some point in the next yeah. week or so that'll do another call for that so if you don't listen all the way to the end one thanks i guess i don't know why i'm here talking if you're not going to listen to it mm-hmm. <laughs> um and then yeah uh, patreon.com slash overdue pod another link we have up on that internet website support the show come into our discord server it's it's fun in there mm-hmm. and you time. get to buy us books and buy us hosting and all the stuff that we need to keep the show going and we really appreciate that support especially as we I guess can just continue having children that need stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And until the podcast we, needs until stuff. We, until we figure out a society where <laughs> money isn't required to get goods and services, then we're going to need your support to keep going, I think. Does John, does John Lennon say, imagine there's no money? Is that a lyric in that song? Probably. Uh, but he stole that from Star Trek The Motion Picture. <laughs> Okay. Or maybe, I don't. Yeah, he probably <laughs> stole it. Okay. He went and bet forward in time and stole it from Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Great. Get us out of here, Andrew. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. Until we get you next time, please try to be happy.
That was a HeadGum Podcast.